I didn't plan to preach on the first two readings, but I was sitting in church listening to them, and I thought, I just want to say something. Uh, when I was in seminary, there was a book published by a Roman Catholic priest named George Tavard, who taught, I think, at that time, at one time at a Methodist seminary. He was an assumptionist. That was the religious order he belonged to, and they're the, the ones that John Henry Newman, whose hymn we sang, uh, one of them today, uh, made his submission to the Roman Church to, an assumptionist father in a village near Oxford. But George Tavard wrote a book called Woman in Christian Tradition. And in this book, he talked about the uh, temptation in the garden. And it, he was answering the, the, uh, the view that you may be surprised is still around, that is, that women are the cause of the fall. <laughs> right? In other words, they, they uh, told that, she told Adam, don't worry about it, you can eat it, nothing will happen. <laughs> so all I remember is this sentence that stayed with me from the book, which is, um, Tavard said, it would be a pusillanimous tempter indeed to tempt the weakest link in the chain. <laughs> and the second thing is that Paul is at his, what some might say, uh, turgid best today in Romans 5. So here's the thing that just, if you could cut through all this, what he's getting at. He talks about Adam. The view that says Adam's uh, responsible for the fall. Uh, we all blew it in the Garden of Eden. Adam's at fault. And now Jesus has come, and he's the new Adam. And he's going to reverse, through his words and works and what he did, what happened there. So it's part of Paul's theology to understand this process of reversal from Adam, the first Adam producing the fall and the new Adam, Jesus Christ, to uh, redeem us and to pull us out uh, of, the, of the fallen condition. Uh, Roman Catholics and m many Anglicans believe that what happened in the Garden of Eden was that human beings lost their supernatural endowment, but that it is still possible to know the good. Reformed theology would suggest that in the Garden of Eden, we completely blew it. There is no way back. Only through God's coming in, through to, if Jesus to, could save us. There is no way that we can do anything about all of this. So there are two different uh, threads that run through Christian thinking about how this works. And um, my tendency is to accept the, the, the more Catholic view. I think that's a reasonable uh, way to look at what happened at the fall. This is the first Sunday in Lent. We've had Ash Wednesday, which uh, begins this season. And um, just for a matter of interest, uh, the first time ashes were used with any regularity all over the place in uh, the Western Church was in, a, in the ni about 900 A.D., so it's a fairly long time ago. But it wasn't something that was done from the jump. And remember also, it's a sign of repentance, not a sign of fasting. So you can read the 
gospel from Matthew about hypocritical religious practice and not feel too badly about having ashes on your forehead, at least uh, in, in the technical sense. Three themes in Lent that we will be revisiting in some form or another throughout the next five weeks, and that, those are repentance, reconciliation, and godly motives. I've spent some time on this uh, over the last couple of months, but just to do it again, because this is the season where this comes right to us. The, the season of Lent originally was not just a season where we focused on our shortcomings or people who uh, were deeply sinful wanted to do some work to um, shrive themselves of this sinfulness. It was a season of preparation for baptism, and baptism was the principal theme that ran through this preparatory season because it was a time when those who were to be baptized, who had prepared for a long time in some parts of the Christian world, maybe as long as three years, were now going to be baptized on Easter, the only time baptism was done, and it was a period of intensive preparation. And those who, whose behavior needed repair would also sign up with the church to say, I intend to uh, do some things that indicate my sincerity about uh, reconnecting with the promises of God and renewing my baptismal promises. And so that was the focus. And the reason it was, or, or the reason then it became so much of an emphasis to talk about uh, our sinfulness, to take on hair-raising as austerities, to uh, speak about all those things, was twofold. One, Constantine declared Christianity the, the legal religion of the Roman Empire. So the normative age for baptism originally, before that was so, was adulthood. And now we baptized all the adults pretty quickly, and the kids were the ones who we baptized. So somehow that focus was uh, lost in some sense. And we were moving the liturgy from Greek into Latin in the West. And because of moving the liturgy from Greek into Latin, we had a new Bible that St. Jerome translated into Latin from Greek and Hebrew. And in the Latin Bible, John the Baptist and others say not repent, metanoiete, they said penitentiam agite, do penance. So they said, well, here it is. And for 1,100 years, people read that and said, that's what we're supposed to be doing in Lent. Not thinking about uh, looking in a diff different direction for happiness understanding how it is that we need to uh, live our lives in a new way. I'm going to talk about the temptation of Christ, but I hope you'll indulge me. I have a book of, of, uh, that I just got of, of articles about keeping Lent, and there's one in here from Barbara Cawthorn Grafton, Crafton, who is an Episcopal priest, I think her most recent, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, job in the Episcopal Church was she was the interim priest at St. James Church in Florence. Not bad duty. Yeah. So she wrote this article, Living Lent. We didn't even know what moderation was, what it felt like. We didn't just work 
We inhaled our jobs, sucked them in, became them. Stayed late, brought work home. It was never enough, though no matter how much time we put in. We didn't just eat, we stuffed ourselves. We had gained only three pounds since the previous year. We told ourselves three pounds is not a lot. We had gained about that much in each of the 25 years since high school. We did not do the math. We redid living rooms in which the furniture was not worn out. We threw away clothing that was merely out of style. We felt that it was important to be good to ourselves and that this meant that it was dangerous to tell ourselves no about anything ever. Repression of one's desires was an unhealthy thing. I work hard, we told ourselves, I deserve a little treat. We treated ourselves every day. And if it was dangerous for us to want and not have it, it was even more so for our children. They must never know what it is to want something and not have it immediately. It will make them bitter, we told ourselves. So we anticipated their needs and desires. We got them both the doll and the bike. If their grades were good, we got them their own telephones. We looked for others whose lives were similarly overstuffed. We found them. This is just the way it is, we said to one another on the train in the restaurant. This is modern life. Maybe some people have time to measure out things by teaspoonfuls. Our voices dripped with contempt for those people who had such time. We felt oddly defensive, though no one had accused us of anything. But not me, not, not anyone who has a life. I have a life. I work hard. I play hard. When did the collision between our appetites and the needs of our souls happen? Was there a heart attack? Did we get laid off from work? One of the thousands certified uh, as extraneous? Did a beloved child become a bored stranger? A marriage fall silent and cold? Or by some exquisite working of God's grace, did we just find the courage to look the truth in the eye and for once not blink? How did we come to know that we were dying a slow and unacknowledged death and that the only way back to life was to set all our packages down and begin again carrying with us only what we really needed? We travail, we are heavily laden, Refresh us, O homeless, jobless, possessionless Savior. You came naked, and naked you go, and so it is for us, so it is for all of us. Pinch a little? Sure does for me. So in the reading today about the temptation of Christ, or the temptation of Jesus, we have what Barbara Crafton is talking about in terms of what I mention over and over again, too, and that's the three energy centers where all this stuff is located, security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control, and how we understand how that works itself out. Father Keating says that uh, a couple of things before I read something from him. In the Bible and in the spiritual writing of uh, early Christians, the desert is understood to be a place of purification. The wilderness is not just something that is geographical because it's, we also uh, live with 
an internal wilderness ourselves. So when we think about that and we think about the processes of purification, uh, we don't have to go physically into a desert in order for us to uh, enter this process of purification and coming to grips with the three energy centers. Jesus redeemed us from the consequences, uh, this is Father Keating, of our emotional programs for happiness by experiencing them himself. As a human being, he passed through the pre-rational stages of developing human consciousness, immersion in matter, the emergence of a body self, and the development of conformity consciousness over identification with one's family, nation, ethnic group, and religion. He had to deal with the particular but limited values of each level of human development from infancy to the age of reason without, of course, ever ratifying with his will their illusory projects for happiness. Jesus appears in the desert as the representative of the human race. He bears within himself the experience of the human predicament in its raw intensity. The early uh, fathers of the church uh, for the first four centuries were very concerned about the relationship between the humanity and divinity of Jesus. And they were very concerned about talking about his humanity and they would ask questions and write long articles like, did Jesus go through a moral development? Right? Did he have to be taught, get up and brush your teeth? Socialization. Some would say, oh no, he, was he knew all that already, he didn't have to do all that. But the conclusion was, yes he did, he's just like us, he's a human being. He had to go through a moral development. He had to enter the human predicament in all its raw intensity. And so what we see today in the story of the temptation of Jesus in the desert is him coming face to face with these things. Uh, and the reason this occurs is that Jesus will emerge from the desert now with a clearer vision and focus about who, he's going, who he is and what he's going to do. And you heard Ernest say a week or two ago that when we talk about 40 days in the wilderness, we're talking about a long time. So, you know, don't think about... Uh, uh, it's... it's uh, Speaking about biblical literalism, N.T. Wright in a YouTube video I saw a while back said, uh, when you talk about this stuff, you have to understand that if somebody reads the story of the prodigal son and uh, says to you, I want to know where that farm was. I want to know where, who, who that, where do they live, right? Well, <coughs> nowhere. You know, they, it's a story about... To illustrate a point. So what we're talking about here is the idea of, of coming to grips with uh, who we are and what, what it is we're going to do. So Jesus is asked to turn stones into bread, security and survival. He's taken, he, he's, uh, taken up on a pinnacle and said, throw yourself off. The angel will come and they'll hold you up. You, who you are, affection and esteem. And then he goes up on a high place and he's shown all the kingdoms of the world. And these can all be yours. Power and control. And so he answers this and moves now through to the next stage. So we're going to read 
as we go through uh, in the coming weeks uh, how Jesus now will put his ministry together as he moves towards Jerusalem. This week, uh, take a look at your emotional programs for happiness. Know that the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness is testimony to the fact that he has been everywhere we have been and brought redemption out of what appeared to be a destiny of being overwhelmed by bad energy and self-centered fear, which could be defined as the committee that lives rent-free in your head. Right? Remember Paul said in today's epistle, uh, no one who believes in him will be put to shame, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen.